it's critical that we all, in my mind at least, is critical that we all realize that we are nature. And it's critical because you can't respect nature when you think that you're separate from it. When you understand that you are nature, you take a different level of respect towards the things that are nature, which is everything else. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace, and this is episode 210. Uh, and I have a co-host. You! Mr. Sharp. Yeah. is joining me uh, because we've been working to get, well... We've been actually doing some stu- some stuff, which we'll talk about on a future podcast. In fact, we have a future podcast about it over the last week. But uh, for the last two days, we've been in a cabin in the mountains of Colorado. And we've got yep. another couple of days here, and we've just been buckling down and getting some work done. Yeah, we are just outside of Estes Park. It's my dad's best friend. has had a cabin here for 15 years, and it's just been a place I've always come to recharge and, and reconnect and listen to the wind blowing through the trees and the rocks. And it's a great place to just buckle down, like you said, and, and just get some work done, but also take little nature hikes around lunchtime and stuff like that. So It's the perfect combination to recharge mm-hmm. and also be incredibly productive. Yep. Except when I'm getting distracted scanning the mountaintops for mountain lions. Yeah. I keep sure. on feeling like I'm going to see one up there. They're out here. I mean, I've seen them on the cameras, and there's elk and mule deer and black bears and... Uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of wildlife activity in this area, but they probably hear us clickety-clacking on our keyboard and <laughs> aren't coming around. Well, for the last day, I've been periodically distracted by hummingbirds, mm-hmm. which I only saw for the first time in my life about a year ago. Really? Yeah. Oh, and now know. I've probably seen more in one day than I had in the rest of my life put together. Yeah, there's quite a few buzzing around here. They're incredible. Um, so this podcast uh, with Josh, we recorded... <sighs> I guess five or six weeks ago now. Yeah, I think that was end of May, early June, Mm. something like that. I'm just, uh, for context, uh, explain where we were when we were speaking to to Josh and how that podcast came about and the collaboration with Tecovis and Outpost. Sure. So we were in Wimberley, Texas, which is, I don't know, 40 minutes west of Austin, and it's on the Blanco River, and we were actually sitting on the porch of his train caboose that he converted into a guest house. And we had been doing some fishing with him and interviewing him. He he was our feature story in Volume 9 that was presented by Tecovas. Really interesting guy, very diverse background, and kind of has an unlikely path that has led him to mentoring new hunters and anglers and naturalists. And so, yeah, we, we kind of, that was the context of us going down there. And it was one of those situations. Along with I, having lots of fun. Yeah, well, <laughs> I had a, I had a phone call with him before we went down and what was supposed to be a 30 minute briefing on what we were going to do turned into a two hour rant where we got really geeky about star Wars movies and <laughs> things like that. So we became fast. It's friends. Okay, you're not going to hear any of that. Yeah. On show. No. So we became fast friends. And then when we got there, it was like, we already knew him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we had a great time and he's a great host and uh, just a super passionate, smart guy. And yeah, we had a great conversation. Uh, and so this, this, is not the first installment of the Tecovis Outpost uh, podcast series, but there's mm-hmm. also a Tecovis Outpost digital series that exists as well. Just explain that relationship sure. with Tecovis and how this is yeah. all coming together as one thing. So Paul Hedrick is the founder of Tecovis. He approached me in, I think it might have been 2000. 
12 or 13 before the brand even launched. And he was introduced to me by some mutual friends and they had recommended me to shoot some of his initial launch material. And so uh, over the first few years of Tecovis's birth, I did a lot of work with Paul and Tecovis to help launch the brand and shoot catalogs and do some creative direction and hire ambassadors. So I go way back with them. I've got a, a special special spot in my heart for, for that brand and they make amazing boots. And I can uh, testify to that. Yeah, and I, I, I like to tell everybody, I don't know if Paul will admit this or not, but they have a boot called the Wyatt and it was named after <laughs> Wyatt, the shaggy dog. So anyways, over, over the years, as, as they've grown, um, they started to move more into the outdoors conservation and tiptoeing to the hunting space. And it just, you know, by serendipity or natural occurrence, we started to kind of partner back up. And so we're actually producing several stories a quarter for them that are both going on their blog called The Outpost. We're also doing some of these stories that are going in our print publication. But then, as you know, obviously we're hosting some of the particular guests on the podcast that have really good overlap with... So Malou was the last one yep, we did. Malou yep. and uh, and a lot of ranching. We did one with... Um, North Bridger Bison with, yep. with Matt Skoglund. Yeah, and, and stuff I like still that. get comments about that to this oh, day. Yeah. Even though that, that released, I don't know, four or five months, mm-hmm. maybe six months ago, I still get emails about that, that interview yeah. with him. So it's just, it's a, it's an ideal relationship with a, a brand, a friend brand where our goals are kind of headed in the same direction and, and we can kind of help each other out, us on the creative and production side and them on the uh, distribution and larger awareness side. So yeah, it's been a great time and we've been able to to sync up on a lot of things and we've got some more coming down the pipeline too. Uh, and we as Modern Huntsman, it's only a couple of weeks ago that Volume 9 started hitting people's doorsteps. Yeah, yeah, that was... Um, an interesting situation with the global supply chain and paper shortage and all of that. So it was a little bit of a scramble and a gamble to get that one done on time. It was a little bit late for circumstances we couldn't control, but it is out in the world. Uh, We couldn't be more happy with it. And I think for anyone who has subscribed or ordered the issues, well, one, thank you, but you'll notice something different that we talked about a little bit in the editor's letters and some social is that we actually did away with the theme. And so now we're doing, it just became limiting. It was, it was an interesting creative exercise to try to curate all these stories under one topic, but it became, we, we were, were having to say no to stuff because it didn't fit a theme. We're getting, that we really wanted to yeah, print. We're getting so many incredible submissions and, and, you know, people reaching out from national geographic and other sort of avenues who were saying, I have this body of work. And after how many times of being able to say, oh, well, it doesn't really fit the theme, we're like, this is stupid. So anyways, we did away with that. And now we're having recurring thematic sections. So there are sections of the book that are thematic and that will be a part of every issue moving forward. And that just gives us more flexibility and uh, the chance to kind of get ahead and dive deeper into specific topics. So other than that, it's, uh, you know, each one has been an evolution. And, and I think that this one is better than the last one. Even yep. though you and I love Africa so much, I think that this one in particular is really, each time we're able to do a little bit more of what we wanted to do. And yep. and something I'm really excited about that I forced Byron to put into the back was what we're calling Image Studio. So we do a lot of work outside of just the book, and we haven't really done a great job of talking about yeah. it. We've shot a ton of films. We've done a lot of white-label creative work. We've done strategy and consulting. We've done pop, you know, specialty podcast-branded series we did with the Cabela's family. And then we did The Living with Nature with Swarovski. So in the back of the book, there's basically this kind of 
showcase of creative work that we've done outside of the book. And uh, I'm excited about that because um, it's just going to give people a little bit more of a peek behind the curtain of, of what we do besides just make magazines. Yeah. And actually, one of the things that we talked about in that uh, back of the book section uh, is a film that we'll be releasing mm-hmm. pretty soon yeah. about our guest editor of Volume 8, John yep. Banovich, yep. which actually we did a little private screening of at the event, at the Swarovski event. That's we true. At. We did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, John's been a friend and a mentor of mine for oh, yeah, about 15 years, maybe. And uh, we got to spend, what was it, two weeks pretty yeah. much in Kenya and Tanzania with him. and. Uh, Byron shot an awesome. I, I keep saying you saying your name in third person. You're sitting right next to me. But I'm talking about <laughs> listeners, I guess. Shot an amazing film that is now finished and edited and color graded and everything. And we're going to be doing an online premiere of that pretty soon. So stay tuned. Just check out Modern Huntsman's Instagram. That's yeah. where you're going to see everything. Yeah, because you've been you've cut what five or six reels that sort of tease yeah, it I've out. Yeah, I've got. Um, three reels okay. ready to go um, and then some other posts as well which are going to lead up to the premiere yep. over the next com- coming weeks video reels on Instagram for anyone who's not super savvy with what apparently is the only way forward with Instagram So all the cool kids know what we're talking about because yeah, well, we don't no definitely not <laughs> Well, um, I think that's probably enough for us for now. I'm going to let everybody um, get into this amazing conversation with Josh Crompton. Um, but the last thing I have to say before we get into that is a thank you to our Patreon supporters who this week include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of Already Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. You can follow us over on all the socials at Martin Huntsman and myself at Byron J. Pace. Josh, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We have Tyler Sharp joining me in the post seat today as well. Yeah. We've, we have just spent a spectacular morning on your pretty much brand new boat. Yeah. Thrashing a lot of water, <laughs> not seeing a hell of a lot of fish, <laughs> no. but it absolutely didn't matter. What a fantastic morning. It was great to be out with you. Explain the context of where we are, where we're sitting, what part of the world, what the terrain's like, the river that we're on, just so people can paint a picture. Because we're recording this outside, so you might very well hear things that are not really part of the podcast. So you're in the podcast with us on the side of the river. Yeah, we're um, on the Blanco River. In uh, just outside of Wimberley, Texas, um, we're sitting at a large um, cedar table that uh, me and my friend Francisco built. Um, I think it seats about, I don't know, 14, 15 people. Mm-hmm. Um, Enough for a good party. Yes. <laughs> We've had quite a few Thanksgivings out here on a deck overlooking what is a limestone um, bottom, so white with gypsum colored um, water stream. Um, in front of a Missouri Pacific um, caboose, the red caboose, um, which is a guest cabin that we have on the ranch. Which we stayed in last yep. night. Yeah, very awesome. nice. Yeah. And I also swam in the river that's behind us right yep. now. <laughs> yeah. I spent a lot of time with my goggles on just looking at fish, which is so a fantastic fish. pastime. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of different types of fish. Give me, an, give me an idea of what I was seeing yesterday. Some uh, of them I'd never seen before. Yeah, so you saw some gar. I did. They were yeah. the most spectacular. Yeah, those little leopard gar with yeah. their long, needly noses to them. They're a predator, I assume. They are a predator. Yeah, yeah. They're really fun to catch on the fly, uh, but very difficult, but really fun. Because their mouths are very narrow, aren't they? Yeah, very narrow yeah. and a lot of bone. Mm. So some people just use like frayed 
flies with no hooks, like with this frayed rope. Oh, so that when the the teeth just bind to it? Yeah, I don't do that, but huh. that's, that's one that's one method. You can just get them with flies too, though. You know, but it's just you got to be careful with the hook set. Yeah. Um, you saw some bluegill, probably some um, Rio Grande cichlids, which is the only cichlid that's native to the United States. Mm-hmm. There's um, many, many, many of them in Africa. Yeah, 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 so many there. Yeah, but not not here. This is the only one that's native to the U.S. and maybe North America. I can't remember. Um, you saw some bass, probably some smallmouth, maybe some Guadalupe bass, which is endemic to um, the Texas Hill Country streams, um, and probably some hybrids between smallmouth and um, Guadalupe bass. Well, it was a perfect way to spend yesterday afternoon dipping in and out of the river on a very hot day. Um, we've got so many things to talk about. We've been talking about all of the world's problems and some <laughs> of the world's solutions on the, on the river and on the lake today. But tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Um, a lot of the things we've been talking about are things that, that we've been discussing the last sort of two days since I met you has been the things that you're up to now. But um, tell me a little bit about your your upbringing. I'm interested to understand, you know, here's a person who's deeply fascinated by humans' connection to nature. Uh, but where did that come from? Where did that stem from? Yeah, so it's windy out here. It is windy. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's the, that's the moral of today. We're he's like, oh, he's got so a cold. bigger windshield on his, and he's speaking most. I think we'll be okay. Yeah. You've also got your back to the wind. So I grew up back and forth between Telluride, Colorado and San Antonio, Texas. And, um, I didn't grow up with a strong male role model that got me out into the woods camping and hunting and fishing and doing all those sort of things. I had a grandfather who did all that stuff, but he and I were never able to really make the connection to do those things together. Um, my family, um, uh, my religious upbringing guns were kind of a, a no-go in our world. And my grandfather was a huge hunter, so I think that was a barrier, you know, was my family. You weren't allowed to interact because of the gun? Yeah, yeah, because of the gun thing, yeah. But I remember, so being in Telluride, when I was 12 years old, I came to fishing kind of on my own. Um, And the way that went down was um, I had this friend of mine, John Gowdy. He's a ski patrol in uh, Telluride, Colorado still. He's a fiery redheaded swarthy <laughs> swarthy from being in the sun because he's like defied the the, the factors this is like the most tan redheaded man you will ever meet uh, i so. understand the difficulties <laughs> i never thought i'd hear tanned redhead in the same sentence no before. no he is he's, or he's did his true, freckles just join up they may have he's a true mountain man he's a great guy uh, but he and his dad would go um fly fishing a lot and i remember you know when I was younger, him sort of telling me the stories of him and his dad fly fishing. And, um, I didn't really have that figure in my life. And I now can reflect and say that my desire to go fly fishing was about getting this strong male role model figure in my life or, but, um, what I did is in Telluride, everything was done on charge account. So you'd charge at the grocery store, you'd charge at the, um, at the sporting goods store And so I decided one day I was going to roll down to the sporting goods store. I timed it to be at the first of the month. So it would be the longest for the bill getting to my mom as possible. And I charged (laughs) an Orvis 
I don't know what kind of rod it was. Probably like their version of a Clearwater rod. Yeah. They may have even made those back then. I think um, I charged this rod and the whole setup, and I went and tried to teach myself how to fly fish, and I did a terrible, absolute just terrible. That's job. a hard task though to not have anybody to show you. Yeah, I mean, I had books, okay. so I would buy. I bought books so and, before YouTube, where you could just watch some. Yeah, no, I bought books. <laughs> I used to read. I loved reading. Like I would spend. Um, summers when I was in San Antonio, I'd ride my bike down to the book stop and I would just go in and just read. I just like hung out and escaped the heat by reading. I was a big book nerd. So, um, <clears throat> so I did that with, with fly fishing, picked up books and read and went around and I'd hide the rod and sneak it out of the house and go and try to fish. And, um, you know, my mom, the bill finally came and she called the shop and she was like, uh, no, we didn't buy a fly rod. And they're like, yeah, Josh came in and bought a fly rod. <laughs> so <laughs> how'd that go down? Uh, yeah, I got in some trouble. It wasn't really that bad. Cause I think my mom realized what I was up to more than I did and realized that this was a, something that I needed for my own, you know, uh, mental health at that age. And, um, so I had to do some work to pay off the rod and then she bought me some fly casting lessons and I, learned to cast the thing after a month of being frustrated and caught my first fish. And, uh, ultimately a guy by the name of Dan Lansing, who was like Dan, Dan and June Lansing, Dan, June, Nathan, Todd, and Emily, the Lansings, they lived behind us in Telluride and they had like, they were like the cleavers, like the leave it to beaver, just perfect family. And so I was pretty envious of them always. And Dan saw me out there messing with my fly rod and he was like, do you want to come fishing with me and my boys? And so I went out fishing with them and, uh, he kind of like, you know, the world changed when he started talking to me about bug life cycles and entomology. And I got to see. So now it was more than just about casting for fish. Yeah. And it was, what it was, was taking all the stuff that I read in a book. Yeah. And actually having somebody take me out there and show me it, you know, and a hands-on connection to it. And that made all the difference. And from that point forward, I was a, a fly angler and I would go with Todd and Nathan and Dan on occasion. And I would walk to the rivers myself. And as soon as I got my driver's license, I drove all over southwestern Colorado fishing. So judging by the passion for fishing that I've seen today when we were out on the lake, I'm assuming that, is, had, that has been a constant through your life since that day. I wish I could say that, actually. You know, I fished, I skied, I kayaked, I rock climbed. I did all of that stuff. And then I got older and um, went to college, found girls. And like, it happens. And girls <laughs> replaced, like, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like... It's like all those things combined. Yeah. I was like, this is way cooler <laughs> than, than any of those things. And... uh I don't know. And then life happens. You start a family and I got in the restaurant industry and I just stopped doing all the outdoor stuff. All, I mean, absolutely all of it. For quite a long period? A really long period. Yeah. Probably um, 15 plus years. Yeah. Probably about 15 plus years. And when I retired from the wine industry, when I got out of that industry, I was like, what am I going to do with myself? And I kind of took a moment to decompress and I found skiing again. And in finding skiing again, I reconnected myself to nature um, to some extent. 
but that's still skiing is kind of one of those things that you can do where you're just zipping through nature, mm-hmm. not really necessarily connecting to it. It's interesting because I feel like that way about like mountain biking, um, kayaking. This is not to knock any of those things because they're amazing. But I think them as a, as a recreation vehicle themselves are not necessarily going to connect you to nature. They're going to put you in nature. But it doesn't require participation within nature. It doesn't. Like observing nature itself, um, you know, and looking at the species in nature is not required for those things. Um, so when I, I wasn't fishing and I was just skiing. And I was telling you guys earlier, I picked up the Omnivore's Dilemma. Read the book, read all three of the sections. If anybody's read it, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Um, but it talks about three food systems, and one of them is the um, mainline agricultural sort of industrial complex that is, you know, factory farming. And the other one is sustainable farm movement. And then the last one is the foraging and hunting. And, you know, Michael Pollan does this great job of walking you through the whole thing that culminates in him eating a meal. So each each section ends in eating a meal eating from a meal. that system from that system okay. yeah so like the system like the the um, farm complex you know industrial farm complex system is he tries to buy a cow and then follow his cow from field to meal um, and he very quickly learns that as soon as the cow hits the feedlot <laughs> where's no, my cow yeah that's, he's not going to find his cow so he doesn't find his cow um, but he ends with. He ends with eating a McDonald's meal as being like the end product of factory farming. And then he goes to Joel Salatin's um, Polyface Farms and he lives there for three months and he helps raise chickens and do the rotational grazing. And, you know, then he ends that with a meal that he harvests himself and a chicken that he, you know, kills himself and he eats this meal. And then the last one, he learns to forage, and he goes and he forages, and he kills a wild boar in California, and he makes this meal out of foraged foods and out of a out of a boar that he killed. So I put the book down, and I told my wife, I was like, I want to start a sustainable farm at the ranch in Texas. And she was, she's great. She's, like, very supportive. She's like, yeah, of course you do, and we, and we can do that. He's like, of course you do, and let's make it happen. So how old are you at this point? Oh, God, I guess uh, it's like 34 or 5, somewhere in there. And so um, there's that wind. Um, So I um, picked up a bunch of books, went back to my... This is just like, this is, I'm sure you're picking up a reoccurring theme here. So I went and picked up a bunch of books, and I read a lot about it. And it's like a year and a half of reading Joel Salatin's books, just in like how to lay out a farm. I sketch out farms on paper, and I'd like okay. So you're very much the planner. Yeah, I was way like build the system, plan the okay. system. Yeah, you know, I was a computer science major. So okay, well like, that explains. Something. Yeah, like yeah. building systems, you know. So I build the system, and then I came and like hand built this the garden that we went and got some cucumber weed out of. Just, we just been sampling some, yeah. yeah. That I got hammered by bull nettle in. <laughs> so I was like, don't don't hit that bull nettle. Immediately just, <laughs> you told me not to scrape by it. <laughs> I ran it like five. It's like, ow, ow, ow. So I hand built that with my friend Francisco. And then like the day we went to plant, 
things. My wife and I get out there and we're going to plant things. And I'm like, guess what? I hate planting. I hate gardening. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be a gardener. <laughs> like, it's like, this sucks. So, you know, to me, you know, <sighs> hunting had not been an option because guns were such a negative my whole life. But I was super, I'm like, I'm like three years committed into like participating in my food system and I realize I'm not going to grow it. So it's like, I am going to shoot something like I'm going to, you're not a farmer. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not a farmer. So clearly I am going to hunt. And I thought about foraging, but that was a little, again, like you can pick up a book and read about foraging. But then when you start going out there and like picking plants, you're like, well, is this going to kill me? Do I have this right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's tough. And so I decided that I would, hunt and so I took a class learned to butcher a hog at a farm and came back to the ranch and went out and shot killed and harvested butchered processed a doe by myself and did a pretty terrible job at the butchering and processing the first time um you know I I cried when I shot the doe it was a heavy impact moment for me um but you know as I was going down the journey of reading Polyface Farms, all these books, all these Joe Salatin books, I was also reading about ranch management and wildlife management. And I became a Texas natural uh, master naturalist in the process. I and didn't know that. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Is that a course? Yeah, it is. It's a really cool course. And it started here in Texas. Um, A&M, TAMU, AgriLife, TPWD. Okay. Mm-hmm partnered together to create a program called the Master Naturalist. It's international now. Um, Other states have adopted the program as well. Um, It was a cool program that had been designed specifically because Texas is 97% private. Um, And what you had is a lot of generations that had started to live in the city and were getting disconnected from the land and general wildlife and land management practices were being lost. And even just the idea that you have to manage the land, like the responsibility for it. Some tracts of land were just sitting, you know, fallow and just like every, all sorts of terrible things were growing up that were blocking out all the native plants that should be there. And animals, you know, were procreating and reaching population densities and not were, are, it still happens today that are not, the land is not able to support. And so this course was made to in like a compressed time frame teach someone who is a landowner what they need to do to take care of their land. Um, It's since changed. The program is much more geared now at fostering volunteers to get volunteer hours back into state parks, public lands, which is also a huge need. But the core, the basis of the things that you need to learn to manage your land responsibly are all in that, in that master naturalist course. So yes, it was really neat. And as you, study that course and you start to learn and read, you know, you realize that there's too many deer. Somebody has to shoot the deer. Somebody has to keep the populations in check because there's no more predators because we got rid of the predators because they don't jive with, you know, our ever expanding suburban backyards. Um, And so I became really right with the idea of hunting before ever deciding to be a hunter. And I approached it from a habitat standpoint of like, okay, I need less deer so I can have better habitat for turkeys. Part of the management system. Yeah. 
So, so even though it was really difficult to shoot that first doe, um, I also knew that it was something that, that needed to happen. You know, it was a process that needed to happen on this property. So that's how I came to hunting, sort of on my own, cobbling together, reading, and uh, doing that solo. Wow. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it was challenging, actually. Tell us a little bit more about, I mean, we we talked about this a little bit in the Tacova story, but tell us a little bit more about Spoke Hollow in particular and, and kind of what you do here and what the some of that larger vision is. I mean, some of that we want to keep to ourselves because we're going to roll that out yeah. together. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, give us a little bit more Stoked background there. that, by the way. So, yeah, you know, Spoke Hollow, um, my wife and I, this is a family property. Her, her grandfather bought it in the 40s. And um, he lived here until he passed away um, in the 70s, I believe. Then her grandmother lived here on her own for another 20 years, I think, almost, until she passed away. And really, after her grandfather was not around, there was really no steward of this property. So it's a 1,000-acre property, 45 minutes from Austin, an hour from San Antonio, and a pretty desirable area where the ranches are being cut up and turned into ranchettes and there's not a lot of larger scale land management happening and this place sat and turned into a cedar forest basically which is what will happen if you leave a piece of property alone in the hill country and for people who don't know cedar uh is that a problem yeah it is it's an ash juniper um and it's a problem it's a misunderstood problem is it native it is native. It is. It's a native aggressive, though. Okay. Um, its traditional management tools were fire and bison. Okay. So fire <laughs> repression now and bison long gone. Yeah. Yeah. And the cedar just hasn't got the memo. Um, so it's a pretty cool plant because what it does is it grows... You got me on a cedar tangent. I'm, I'm all to, good with that. I'm, I'm going to try <laughs> to make. I'm all good with tree tangents. <laughs> I'm going to try to make it brief. But um, cedar grows really aggressively because the heavy amount of fire it used to face mm-hmm. and the bison activity that it would face. So it had to be aggressive, or it wouldn't exist. Absolutely. Okay. And now there's no bison, no fire. It is just turn. It just like blots out hillsides in the hill country. Just stops light from ever reaching um, native riparian and upland grasses that need to be in spaces. Um, So the cedar needs to go, but it also has a historic, I mean, that one time there was people who said, oh no, cedar is not native. But we have a, we have a, a bird, and this is not so popular with so many people, but I'm just going there anyways. We have a bird, the uh, golden cheek warbler, beautiful bird um, that does all of its nesting, here in Texas, every single one of them is born in the Edwards Plateau area of Texas. Um, and then they spend their winters in Mexico. And they exclusively build their nest out of old-growth cedar. So this bird didn't, you know, evolve to do that in the time that Europeans got here. This plant has been here for a long time. And it has a biological web that, like, works around it. So... Um, that was one of our main targets was to manage the cedar on the property and get it to a manageable um, place. And so we do that in a couple of ways that are unique. We don't use uh, bulldozers. We don't use cedar 
beetles, which are these bobcats with these rotating drums on the front of them that push over the trees and suck them under and pound them and grate them and turn them into this mulch. I don't use those things because they're too disruptive to the um, top layer of soil where all the good microbes live that are creating soil, the soil creators that take a very long time to build back if you disturb that, that soil. So we hand remove them all by chainsaw. Okay. And it sounds intensive. Yeah, it's a labor. It is a labor. I did it for years. Um, I don't do that as much now. I've got other much younger than me people who do that. Um, I get out there on occasion, though. I definitely just to do it, especially in the spring. And you can keep up with it? Uh, No, no. But we can do our best. We can be the buffalo. We can be the fire. You know, and we can we can in key places remove the cedar, um, places where we need riparian grasses to grow. But the positive of cedar, right? I mean, there's no free lunch in nature, is the saying. You know, everything there's a give and take to everything. Um, the give that I've observed that cedar does is the cedar if it loses all of its little green leaves, stops growing. It's gone. That's it. It will not. It, it will die. So you can cut them off and leave a stump. If there's nothing green, it's gone. But the wood lasts forever, which is why, like, a lot of the fences out here were made from cedar posts because the woods, I mean, there's 60-, 70-year-old fence posts out on this ranch that are still, like, intact with That's amazing. cedar cedar staves. Are they just high in resin or? A lot of resin. Yeah. A lot of oil. A lot of oil in them. Um but the leaves, the little green leaves, they decompose very quickly. So these leaves are constantly dropping, making a substrate. And in a normal world, fire might come through, burn all the leaves off of a cedar tree. It might waver there until it falls over. And then once it falls over, it becomes an erosion catch on the side of the hills. And that wood will stay there forever. And it just dropped all of this substrate and the substrate then builds the grass. So cedar is a grass, soil, grass builder. And so we try to manage it in a similar way to allow it to grow soil. And uh, there's a bunch of people in the hill country who hate me right now because they're like, kill all the cedar. And I'm like, well, kill 90% of the cedar. Save save 10%. It, it's so common with these. It's an, uh, this all or nothing approach that so much is the case in the conservation world. Yeah. Uh, trees are all good, mm-hmm. or a certain tree is all bad, or a particular weed is all bad, or a certain animal is all good or all bad, and it's normally somewhere in the middle. takes a village. Mm. Even, even with the plant village. <laughs> yeah. It takes, pl- takes a plant village. You know, it's, 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 it's really interesting because people will commonly say, that cedar drinks 35 gallons of water a day. And they make that statement, and I'm like, well... I always look at them and say, which one, that three-foot tall cedar or that 10-foot tall cedar? Which one's drinking 35 gallons? How much does an oak tree drink? How much would grass drink if it was there? So the amount of water that the cedar drinks is not necessarily a strong argument. But the one thing that I will agree on is that it grows in such a tight tight mesh canopy that it competes – Outcompetes everything okay. on the ground, and so for that reason, that's a good argument. So you get no understory really under it. No, not really. A lot of that cucumber weed grows under it. Well, it tastes good. <laughs> yeah, it does. 
And a uh, little blue stem grows under it. And um, Cytote's grandma grows under it. And buffle grass. So when you cut it and you move it out of the way, those grasses take off big time. So, yeah. So we started the outfitter to circle way back to a half hour ago when I went on the cedar tangent. <laughs> we started the outfitter to raise capital to do the projects that need to happen on the ranch. And so that the ranch could be a self-sufficient entity. It was, okay, let's start this outfitter. And very quickly that turned into meeting up with some folks at Stewards of the Wild, putting on some mentored programs, teaching, and then realizing that that fulfilled a desire for myself to create a pathway to coming, becoming a hunter or an angler in a way that connected you to nature in a way that like draws somebody in to where they can actually have a nature connection through these traditions. Because when I think when most, when people would have heard you say outfitter before you just explained this next bit, and we're going to dive into that more, that is not the traditional outfitting route where, where most fit, outfitters are really designed for people who kind of already know that they are, this is a world that they want to be in and they want to go and hunt and, most of them could probably go and do it by themselves without any kind of mentorship. That's how most outfitters are established. Why was it important for you to take a few steps back and create a system that could let people through the door who maybe didn't know anything about it whatsoever, but where the focus was not so much the doing, but the connecting? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that I can't tell you that there was one moment that 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 became like the focus. It sort of happened over time. Um, I came to hunting as somebody who was studying sustainable farming and land management. I didn't come to the woods because my dad or my grandfather said, this is what we do in fall is we, we take the rifle and we go out and we sit in the blind and we shoot a deer. You know, I came to it with a desire to connect to this piece of property and with a desire to take on the responsibility of the ownership of this piece of property. And so I think it's a natural extension to want to bring people down the path that you took. So, Because you would describe yourself as a, a late onset hunter, would you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, definitely an adult onset hunter because um, I was in my mid-30s when I came to hunting. And of all of the things that I did fly fishing and hunting, ultimately hunting because I came to it later in life, were the things that connected me the most to nature. Even though I was doing, camp, I was camping and hiking. Yeah, it's not like you weren't spending time in the outdoors before. Yeah, but I wasn't a naturalist yet. Um, it was it was fly fishing and and consciously became a naturalist through hunting. And what I have found is that a lot of people who've been hunting their whole, whole life aren't naturalists. Um, and with our mentor programs, it's been cool to see people who come to be a mentor because they have a set of skills, technical skills, that they can teach, watching them learn about being a naturalist and watching that improve their ability to enjoy their hunting has been pretty, pretty amazing. Why do you think that is the case? 
that there are there is this section of well, we're just talking about hunting in particular here um, in this case that has missed that step because I would I would say that if you were to go back like 60 70 years ago there was the proportion of people who were also naturalists and I make that judgment based on either speaking to people who are now dead or reading the book you can talk to dead people <laughs> <laughs> they have I have spoken to them when they were alive but it's since passed away because they're very old <laughs> I, hate uh, people. I wish I could <laughs> um, or reading books from, from that era and there was very much more naturalist mindset about the way that they explained their place yeah. in the world and the, the observations that they were making yeah. that's the same that is true of a lot of the fishing books that I have read which yeah. are a lot of decades old um, as much as it is the hunting books. Yeah, less technical skills focused, I think. Um, less gear focused. Yeah, a lot less gear. We've become very gear focused. Yeah. We live in a consumer world, you know. Um, gear is cool. I love gear. Yeah, I love who doesn't? Great, I love great gear, and uh, I love great gear companies. But but I think the real idea is to just be outdoors. You know, um, it's interesting that you say that because I, I think you're right. A right that people were more connected to nature. And there's a study I was reading the other day that actually goes back to the 50s. So it'd be 70 years um, when our connection stopped or started to diminish, diminish from nature. Um, and I will argue right now, though, that hunting in the South often can be less connected to nature because there's a lot more allowance for baiting and a lot more tactics that can allow you to not have to observe nature. Whereas I will say a lot of the people who hunt the West, um, if you're going to find the animals, you, you have to know a lot more about animal sign okay? because you're, you can't bait them. So you do it's have a to function track. of necessity. It is, it is a function <laughs> of necessity that if you're going to find the animals. So what I have found though, but there's so many hunters in the South. And so what I have found is teaching them a lot more about animal sign and teaching them a lot more about what animals are eating and teaching them. And, and some people do get the sign. They get the sign. They got, like, the prints. They got all that sort of stuff. But they don't understand, like, this is what these forbs are here for. And so whitetail are going to eat these forbs. And so if you see these forbs, you know, and, oh, look, if you see, you know, greenbrier that's been snipped off like this, that's deer browsing it. So you know they're kind of in this area. Um, anyways, the study in the 50s was studying all of the words in pop culture, sunshine, um, the deep blue sea, you know, stars, flowers, roses, and looking for their appearance in songs and writing. Okay. And there has been a decline in the appearance of nature words hmm. since the 1950s to now in writing. So Does that have to do with the invention of television? Probably. You know, I mean, TV technology, yeah. you know, um, less time in nature, urbanization, yeah. Yeah. spending more time in cities. I mean, we're not, we're not connected to nature the same way, and it's not supported in our pop culture. Um, and if it's not supported in our pop culture, it quickly becomes irrelevant to future generations. So, um, to me, having been in the outdoors for a long time, I think the calling to bring adults through a program to connect them to the outdoors and happening using hunting and fishing as a platform to do that was just a, it was a, it was a collision that I had been sailing along on a boat 
for a long time towards and it just took me until I was in my 40s, you know, early 40s to to run into all of the right things to have that be where I am and what I do now. So so what does one of those courses look like? And and who are the spectrum of people that would come to them? Yeah, so we have um targeted 21 to 45 mm-hmm. is the is the groups that we've mostly been working with, young professionals. Um, I just came back from a, a program where we were doing education on trout in Wisconsin. And that was actually a lot of like 50 plus. And I want to see us expand and change like what our demographic is a little bit. But I do like this 21 to 45 year old demographic that we've been working with. And it's mostly people. I found that it's people who want to get connected typically a little bit more to their food source. That's what they come in for. And a lot of programs have focused on skills and food. And our programs are different. So we have four of them. We have Enter the Uplands, First on the Fly, Big Game Basics, and then a new one that we roll out this year is Field Skills Foundations. And the first three are very self-explanatory. They're consumptive in nature. And then Field Skills Foundations is primitive skills, learning to start a fire, um, camping, um, foraging, uh, navigation, things that just generally you can use to enhance your enjoyment in the outdoors, whether you're a hunter or angler or not. Um, but we teach those things in the same way that we teach the hunting and angling courses, which starts with um, telling people, well, they get there, they, they sign up, they're like, oh, I'm going to learn to hunt. So, for example, somebody says, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn to hunt. I'm signing up because I want to learn to hunt. And then they get here and we set up our tents and we sit down and we have a big old roundtable conversation where we talk about expectations and what we're going to do. And uh, the facilitator at the end tells them, you know, um, my objective this over the next couple of days is to turn you into a sporting conservationist. And then they explain what that means, which is somebody who has accepted or adopted the idea of conservationism. They also explain that not all hunters and anglers are conservationists. Just because you buy a license doesn't make you a conservationist. It's it's an argument that gets thrown around quite a lot, though. Yeah, people are like, I'm a hunter, so therefore I'm a conservationist. Well, no, you're not. You're you're a hunter, you know, or you're, you're an angler, you know, but you're not a conservationist. And, and the, and the reverse side of that is there's a lot of people who are birders that never buy a fishing license or never buy a hunting license. And they're more of a conservationist, you know, even though they're not buying a license. So buying a license doesn't make you a conservationist. It just means that a byproduct, you know, I mean, to, to definitively sum it up, I buy a lot of things and my sales tax go to a lot of things. I am not a road constructionist, you know, <laughs> I mean, just yeah. because, just because a tax that because I you're paid. you're forced to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm a road constructionist. I'm a bridge builder. No, you're not. You're just a person whose taxes are going to support those things. And so we explain that to people that just buying a license, buying a license doesn't make you a conservationist. You have to adopt the philosophy of conservationism, which is that um, it is our responsibility to conserve, not preserve, but conserve um, the resources that the earth has, whether they're plant, mineral, animal, you know, water, whatever it may be. We have to conserve them. We have to use them wisely. Do you explain that, the difference? 
Yeah. Because some people wouldn't get that. Preserve yeah. and conserve. Yeah, we do. You know, some, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But I do love to have that conversation because I'm not here to preserve anything. I'm here to, I mean, gosh, if somebody came along and said, Josh, we're going to preserve you at seven years old. I'd be like, absolutely not. I want to age. I want to get old. I just want to be the best version of myself as I age and get old. Because there is, and, and it, it's it's a a carry on from certain conservation, the the John Muir conservation mindset of years gone by that still feeds through today. That preservation is an effective tool and mechanism, and I think that there's maybe some argument um, for protected, preserved areas as some sort of nucleus, mm-hmm. but on a landscape scale, it doesn't work unless yeah. you want to remove humans from that landscape. Yeah. Well, and beavers and ducks and like everything else that changes the habitat too. <laughs> like, I mean, we are part of that landscape mm-hmm. as much as they are, you know, I mean, we are nature. We are nature. Yeah. We are, we are nature. And that's, and I think that's a big part of becoming a conservationist and being connected to nature is accepting our position as as part of it not that it is something separate that needs to be saved you know by us from us um and so it's it's interesting that once we settle on the idea that the goal of the program is to turn these people into becoming conservationists and I also explain that just buying into the philosophy doesn't make you a conservationist. You would take the extra step to do something consciously um, to impact conservationism, whether it be volunteerism. So that's be, there's an active component, not just a passive Yeah, you can't, just be like, you can't just be like, <laughs> yes, yes, conservationism is wonderful. Let's do that, other people. It's <laughs> <laughs> always someone else's problem. Yeah. yeah, you have to do something. You have to Go and volunteer some time or, you know, um, advocate for it. I mean, it can't just be talking. It can be advocating somebody else to action. I guess so. I mean, I guess it's like, do something. You. No. But, I mean, you've got to donate. You have to join a group. You have to vote. You have to, you know, you have to take that extra step to become a conservationist. And and we tell people that we believe the quickest way to, to get them there is to teach them to view the world through the naturalist lens. So that's a whole other categorization. There's conservationism and then there's the naturalist. And using the naturalist lens, we define that as taking a conscious effort to study a species over an extended period of time to understand the way it interacts with the environment, as in how it impacts the environment and how the environment impacts it, which we believe that when you do that, you ultimately start asking the questions of how do I fit into this? You know I mean? It's just, it's in human nature to, as you're asking questions, then apply them back to yourself. So you start to ask the questions of how do I impact that environment? And then hopefully if you have a conscience, you are like, how can I positively impact that environment? And like in an upland hunting program, we will tell people something along the lines of we're going to study upland birds over the next couple of days and at the end of it you're going to understand how they need these native clump grasses to survive and you will understand how having those native clump grasses 
ultimately provide clean drinking water for the world and help us survive. And that's seeding us back into nature. Well, and, and Josh, you, you said something, I don't remember if it was last night or, or earlier when we were fishing, but about the difference between, and and I don't want you to go into the details of the program because I think there's something really special about the surprises you have in store for people about their expectations versus what the curriculum is. But you said something about it's harder to measure that because with our three programs, people can say, okay, well, this person bought a license and we have this to show for it. But um, the difference between that and what you guys are focused on and the possible long-term effects that that might have. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I just came back from an R3 conference and uh, in Oklahoma. You, you might, you'll have to explain R3 for, yeah. for the rest of the world. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, yeah, good point. So R3 is um, recruit reactivate and retain and it is um it is a hunting world thing in the u.s and it's um focused on bringing new hunters in reactivating ones that fell out and then retaining them in and the whole end objective is a metric done by hunting and fishing license cells and right now in the u.s you know hunting and fishing license sales are how a state accesses the Pittman-Robertson Fund acts, the Act funds that is the excise tax on firearms, ammo, bows. So all of that money is getting in a big pile, put in a big pile federally, and your state, based upon the number of licenses you sell, receives their portion of those federal funds based on that. So selling more licenses, in theory, sells more ammo, sells more guns, sells more bows, creates more money, and brings more money back to your state. And so what I heard when I was at the R3 conference is a lot of talk about measuring success, as you were saying, Tyler, based upon did the person buy another license. So they would look at a program like ours and say, if the person didn't buy another license next year, then it was unsuccessful. And my argument, or the question, an argument really, my question was, is the objective a license sale or is the objective to create a conservation-minded individual, somebody who votes for conservation dollars to be created or somebody who goes back to their house and plants a butterfly garden and xerscapes and, you know, tries to use native plants, gets rid of all their St. Augustine, and they impact positive conservationism on that scale. If they never buy a license again, in my opinion, if they have become conservation-minded, then that's a win. I do understand how that's not a good fit for state and federal governments because it's very hard to track or measure. Um, and I think that's where the private sector has to come into this movement because in the private sector, we can we don't have to have that same sort of... <laughs> We don't have to justify our budget every year, like unfortunately, you know, most people do, and justify to a new administration why these things are important. Um, if it's financially viable and the free market supports it, then we can continue to do it. And so, that's really the end. The end goal of our programs is not to have you come back and hunt or fish if it's not for you. Um, but to have you become a conscientious conservationist. 
And I mean, do do you have what is your kind of uh, your your gauge of your own success in that? Yeah, following up with people, seeing what they're doing. Yeah, so we typically stay in touch with them, um, and you know we've got so many other things that we do here at the ranch. Like right now, we're doing the Spoke Hollow Live series, where it's we just planted a pollinator garden and um, had a concert after it, and oh, uh, as part of it. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Well, the people who are at the concert did some of the planting? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's really cool. That. Yeah. So we do things like that, and that's that's a touch base. Like, a lot of our community comes back to these things. You know, they're small. They're limited. We do 25, 30, 25 to 35 people. Um, we'll do another unique series that you'll hear about in the fall. Um, but that's a good gauge for us. Um, another gauge that we've used are how many people stay in and are active participants in the program. And they are buying hunting and fishing licenses, yes. But when they're staying engaged with our program, we can see that they are dedicated to conservationism. Because here's the deal. Somebody could leave a program. If you came to a program that was really just teaching you how to kill an animal and turn it into food, they could leave that program, buy a hunting and fishing license, go into the woods, um you know, not dig cat holes, just crap on trails, <laughs> leave plastic and trash in the woods and, you know, go bear hunting, shoot a bear. And like, you know, that's it. That's not a positive outcome, right? I mean, that's not a conservationist mentality. So the way we've done it is our community keeps feeding back in and we keep developing people over time. And hopefully um, they learn to be a conscientious conservationist. I dare say, like, somebody takes a crap on a trail. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, we won't even yeah. bleep that up. No, it makes sense. <laughs> There'd be far worse stuff than <laughs> yeah. the show. But no, I mean, you, you, make a, you make a very good point. Yeah, just because you're wielding a gun doesn't make you a conservationist. Yeah, or, or fishing. Or whatever, you know, yeah, a bow. Be, yeah. Yeah. Um, is anybody... Who's come to the? I mean, I don't. I guess they kind of, kind of know what they're getting into before they get there. But you have these sort of. You know, you're not hunting on day one necessarily. Yeah. Um, has any? Have you ever had feedback that some people are like disappointed, or once you've taken them through what is a journey, by the time they leave those couple of days, they understand why you kind of force them to slow down and go through that process. Yeah, we haven't had anybody disappointed. Um, which is really cool. I mean, maybe one day we'll run across somebody who's like, less talking, more shooting. You know? <laughs> and I would be like, well, okay, this might not be the place for you. I don't know. You know, but no, we haven't had anybody who's disappointed or at least has told us that they are. Um, I think it's been really successful. It's a good way to, our program is a really good way to bring people into the outdoor space and it gives them so much more than they want. What I hear people leaving saying is I gained so much more than I thought I was going to gain. I came here and thought that I was going to learn to shoot quail or catch fish, but I left with a better understanding of the natural world. And that gift is much larger. So I think it's, that's cool. I love it when that happens. Um, something you were saying earlier, um, about really dedicating yourself to a to understanding a particular species. 
Well, I can think of a handful of friends who just are fascinated by particular species and have maybe even gone and studied them and done PhDs on them. That's not the norm, but it is very much the norm among people who do various types of field sports, whether they are obsessed with elk hunting and they will tell you things about and have seen things about elk that have maybe not even been on nature shows. And, you know, I know a lot about Atlantic salmon just because I've been fascinated about them since I was a tiny little kid and have read everything that I could lay my hands on, that you only really get that fascination because there was also a pursuit of it. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's where... It's the... a depth that you would never... I just don't think you would go into. No. unless Not you... at the same extent. No, unless you become consumed with the pursuit of the species. Yeah, I think, you which know? is much rarer. Yeah. it. You know, it, 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 is, it, is, it is more rare for people to get there on their own. But I think if you jumpstart people with a generalist, like, you know, cause me, I'm not really obsessed with any one species. I mean, and I wouldn't say that my, my depth of knowledge in species, like goes super deep in any one. I'm more of a generalist. I'm actually looking for the connectivity in nature. I'm fascinated by that. And that's what we're trying to teach people. And and it's what's cool about it is like you can go and you can you can study and get a PhD or you can go and pick up a lot of books like I've done many times in my life and read those things. But it's the anecdotal stuff, just those general observations in the field. And you know, it's it's learning that like if I'm into upland hunting, birding is a really cool thing for me to do. That doesn't mean that I need to get my binoculars and go out because I don't do that. I can't go out and like sit for four hours and bird. Like, I wish I could, but it's I'm I need to move around more and I got to be more active. And so, but it is that when I'm in the field, I'm not just looking at quail. I'm observing the raptors. I'm observing the buntings. I'm observing you know the finches that may be around and just kind of I'm focusing on birds when I'm out bird hunting. When I'm fishing, I'm focusing on fish and what's going on in the water. And when I'm turkey hunting, I'm focusing on turkey and only turkey. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw something I still haven't done. But yeah. having, having read a recent well, turkey hunting story um, and heard many people recently talking well, about you, it. You saw, you saw two today. Oh, yeah, I did see two when mm -hmm. we were on the boat. I have to go and do this. Yeah, we will. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You will become obsessed. I mean turkey well josh there might be some people listening to this who you know might be intrigued or maybe making putting questions in their mind is this for me or is this not for me in in your opinion what it's what is the qualification for your program who is this for and and obviously that's not necessarily a demographic so much as a mindset but what what's yeah. that premise so to me it's for everybody yeah whether you've whether you've never hunted or fished or whether you've been doing it your whole life. Because if you've been doing it your whole life, maybe you haven't fly fished. So come jump through a fly fishing program. Or maybe you have hunted big game your whole life, but maybe you've never really paid attention to the how the flora and fauna interact with each other. So, you know, come out and, and take the program. I promise you'll you'll learn something. You know, we get into a lot of cooking stuff that, People who've hunted their whole life are like, 
you mean you cook the neck roast? I'm like, yeah, yeah, you do cook you the neck roast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, you do. They're like, oh, we just took it into the processor. You mm-hmm. know, I've got people yeah. here in Texas specifically um, that have just like they shoot the deer and they take it to the processor. So this is a good course for somebody who's been hunting a long time but didn't hasn't processed their own animal. Yeah. Um, and then there's Field Skills Foundations, which just about anybody can pick up something from that. Just about anybody can learn the something from that. So hunting, fishing, outdoors community in general has been talking uh, m- much more in recent years about how they can be more inclusive across different sects of society and different communities around the world. Do you see what do you see as ways and solutions to that? that question about making it more more welcoming yeah so you know i think um i'm gonna open them just crack yeah, it open just do it just i mean tyler's like the king of the beer yeah yeah that's so whenever one, i come on two. the podcast <laughs> i just drink beer and make jokes that's my job um how can this make the outdoors more inclusive yeah so I mean, there's a perception that there's a problem yeah. you know, for a start, which is that it is not necessarily inclusive. Yeah, and I do think... Um, We've seen that particularly with um, women in hunting in the last yeah. decade. Women, and minorities. And that's been a big, um, a big positive and a kind of a, seen as a big win, particularly in the States, with a lot more women taking it, taking it up. Yeah, and you know, I think there, there is definitely a problem. Let's just... And, but it's not just the outdoors, like... The U.S. has been in a very long process of seeking for more diversity, equity, you know, inclusion, justice, those sort of things. Like, and that and that goes back to emancipation, women's suffrage. You know, we we've, we've been moving for that, and it's been a a struggle for this country, but. For me, I try to stay in my lane, which my lane is the outdoors. And the outdoors um, have been, as a tradition of being in the outdoors, have been inclusive since the beginning (laughs) because we all started in the outdoors. (laughs) Like, no matter what culture, where you're from, you got a background of people who had a tradition of foraging, hunting, fishing. And... What has happened in modern times is, you know, 40s, 50s, um, 30s even, as the park system was coming on, being in the outdoors was becoming a big thing, um, a lot of the marketing machines felt that the person who was going to buy outdoor things was white, middle-aged. And so all of the marketing went in that direction, which means all the ads, all the publications, everything you saw showed people that look like that doing these things. And, you know, there is a, is a, is a thing that happens if you hold up a blue shirt and you say, boys wear blue and you hold up a pink shirt and say, girls wear pink. Then all of a sudden you see blue, you think boy, you see pink, you think girl. It's social conditioning. So if every time you see somebody in camo with a gun, they're white and male, it's social conditioning. And 
whether that, you know, impacts you or whether it's true, whether the outdoors and outdoors people are inclusive or not, it doesn't matter because the social conditioning has led you to believe that it's not going to be inclusive to you, which makes you feel awkward when you go out to do those things. And particularly for women and minorities, um, you know, there was a period of time where you, where you couldn't buy a gun in America. Like that was not a thing. Like, and if you did have a gun, it was not safe for you to have a gun because you may be shot for just holding a gun. So when it comes to hunting with minorities, there are some significant social barriers there. I find that I had those barriers myself. Like, I didn't even know I had those barriers because the way I came to hunting was a point in time where I was like, I didn't really care about those things. I was just going to go hunting because I wanted to do it. You were older. Yeah, I was older and I wanted to do it. But then ultimately, kind of when the the George Floyd thing happened and the movement, the BLM movement that had been around sort of went to the forefront of the conversation and the outdoors kind of outdoor companies started making a, um, a priority to be more inclusive in their imagery. I found that I was confronted with going back through my past and looking at, ah, you know what? There actually was a time where I was a kid when I came to the conclusion that hunting in the outdoor community was not for me. Not because anybody told me it wasn't for me, because I didn't see anybody who looked like me doing it. And I also had nobody to take me to do it. And I was also very jealous of all the people who did have someone to take them to do because it. Because you wanted to do it. Because I wanted to do it. But I didn't, have a, I didn't have an entry point. And I also didn't see anybody who looked like me doing it. And so it was very easy from going from not having an entry point to then not seeing anybody for me to just say, well, hunting is for racist white guys. <laughs> you know, which is not true. So, um, but that was my own, that was my own limitation that I put on myself. Now, you know, there are some very real moments in our history where being in the woods, um, as a woman with or without a gun or being in the woods as a minority with or without a gun has not been safe. That that's a real thing. Um, less safe in certain parts of the country than if you were white and male. And it is still, it's still a case in a lot of places. But to me, that all goes back to social conditioning. It's all a social conditioning thing. So to me, the answer is to normalize showing a broad group of people doing things. So in our programs, we intentionally select applicants and build communities that focus on socioeconomic racial, gender, diversity, um, sexual preference, um, diversity. We try to bring a diverse group of people. And by diversity, I mean that also means that middle-aged white males should be there too. Like, for us, diversity is truly diversity. Now, that may mean that we stand, intentionally stand the equation on its head to where, you know, middle-aged white male is 20%. 30% of the group, and then the rest is, you know, from all these diverse different areas. And that creates a dynamic that normalizes the program. But I personally like to focus on socioeconomic diversity the most. And, you know, this year we're going to be test piling in a program where we have a scholarship base fund 
um, previously, the previous years, we were just kind of doing it. Everybody paid a flat fee. It was around $250. You got to be in the program. This next year, we're actually going to roll out the program at full cost, around $1,400, $1,500, and then have a scholarship program that allows people to come in all the way for free. If you, you, know, if you need a full ride scholarship, we, we will find the money with our partners to get you out here for free. Um, what I think that does is by being intentional about who we invite out, we bring people from different backgrounds, put them in the field, flatten the playing field because it's something that they all know nothing about. And now they can connect and realize that there's more similarities than there are differences between people. And they start looking for the similarities. It's like, you guys have been on rafting trips, right? Um, do you remember going on a rafting trip where it's like, at the end of it, like, the 15-year-old and the 90-year-old have, like, nicknames for each other, <laughs> right? You know? It's like, it's like, oh, yeah, your old smelly fart. <laughs> that's the that's 15-year-old. <laughs> and, like, and the 15-year-old's like, oh, yeah, that's the old lady who kicked my butt in paddling, you know? Like, she, she who paddles a lot. But, you know, everybody, like, when you get on a river, when you, which is when you get in nature and you strip everything down, you realize, I don't mean your clothes, I mean like you, you take away all of the societal stuff and you find that it's, that humanity binds together and realizes that as a species, we're, we're one. Yeah. You know, and nature doesn't care. No. What any, like, <laughs> nature uh, doesn't give a shit. Nature's, nature's, me- nature's metal, in fact. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like that grizzly bear rolling down the, down the trail doesn't really care what you look like. <laughs> Nope. Like, or how much money you have. <laughs> or like, oh, that guy, that guy's got a Rolls Royce. Not eating him, you know? Yeah. Or maybe eat that one. He's maybe has that extra rich diet. He's soft. More tender. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I mean, but I find that people unconsciously, it's not conscious. They unconsciously realize that and they mesh together. So we're intentional with who we bring to the program, which creates an optic that hopefully invites more people, but also impacts people to connect from different backgrounds so it's a it's a really refreshing approach you were explaining some of this to us today on the boat and i was just listening intently um at every word you were saying and uh i want to come on one of your programs (laughs) you are you are coming on one aren't you (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um that was my big takeaway i want to be i want to be part of that yeah. yeah, as an observer sure. or as a mentor, we'll put you to work, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to do some work, whatever's required. You'll come and be a mentor. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the last things I wanted to kind of ask you, and this is uh, some, anything else Tyler has um, after this, was there are large portions of the world, of people particularly in urban areas who go and work in the office block and their life is in the city. They wouldn't necessarily have any reason to seek out that kind of experience because you, you for, the first step is you, you need people to kind of, you, they need to be seeking something like that in order to find a program like the one that you're putting on to take that first step, even though it is a very different approach that, that you're taking and putting people through. How important is it on a much larger scale that people realize their position within nature? And what can we do societally around the world to help people realize that there is a missing piece of their well this is this is what we believe here on this table there's a missing fundamental piece of their life of what actually makes them a human being 
that they need to find. And, and I think we all believe that it would make the planet a better place. Maybe you could expand on that a little. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. Well, first of all, it's critical that we all, in my mind at least, is critical that we all realize that we are nature. And it, it's critical because you can't respect nature when you think that you're separate from it. When you understand that you are nature, you take a different level of respect towards the things that are nature, which is everything else. And it is important for people in urban settings to understand that you don't have to go to the woods. You don't have to go into the outdoors to understand that you're nature. And, but what you do have to do is understand that when I walk into my condo, when I walk into my apartment, when I go into my house in the city, my townhome, whatever it is, nature just walked into the door. <laughs> and like, you are, you are in nature. You are part Take of your nature. shoes off, you animal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but nature just, you're, you are, wherever you go is nature. Yeah. And when you start... Urban nature is really cool. It is actually. really cool. <laughs> yeah. it, it is really cool. And, and the more we make those observations, the more room we will make for the other things in nature. Instead of just trying to create stuff. Like right now, we try to fill the city, you know, I think somewhere a long time, a long time ago, somebody lit something on fire, you know, and all of a sudden the animals that were maybe preying on us, like went away, like got safe around the fire. So we were like, okay, yeah, let's build a fire. This, this is good. And then somebody built a thatched hut and they said, well, this is great. I don't get wet anymore. And then fast forward now where we're like, yeah, let's just build more of that stuff and push the predators and push the far rain and push away. it as far away from our big campfire. And it's kind of what the cities, they're like these big bonfires to push it all back. And I think we got to rein that in and understand that we want to pull the nature into, into our cities, that we want to make space. We want to make travel quarters for animals. Yeah. There's probably a few cities that could do with some grizzly bears taking some people out. Most definitely. Washington, D.C. Yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. Don't come pick me up with a helicopter. No. But but I do think it's just like, it is critical. And, and what can we do? I don't know. I mean, at a large scale, I'm doing the thing that I can do here. I volunteer on the board for Trout Unlimited. So I do the, the thing that I can do there. And to me, it's if you are somebody, this is the thing that, that you can do. If you are somebody who enjoys being in the outdoors, whether it's birding, camping, hunting, fishing, whatever, when you show up to the office, talk about it. And when somebody shows the inkling of a spark of interest, invite them to go do it. Yeah, false. What did you call him, Jeff? Be Jeff? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, when we were talking about. Um, okay. the you just explain that idea. Yeah. Just, yeah, just be Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Yeah, just, be the Jeff. Yeah, be Jeff. right. Yeah. Be the everybody Jeff. knows Jeff. If you're gonna yeah. go camping. Jeff knows about camping. Yeah, and so everybody's like, I'm gonna go ask Jeff about like what type of sleeping bag I should get. So if you are Jeff, and somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, Jeff," because that's Yeti targeted Jeff, they were like, "Let's figure out how we convince the guy who everybody asks, or the gal who everybody asks, how." 
they think Yeti is the best cooler. So if you're if you're Jeff or Jane, you know Jeff or Jane, let's be you know, and you're the person who people come and ask, hey, what kind of sleeping bag I should get? Should I get? Take the next step and say, well, do you want to go camping? Not just oh, here's don't don't go all gear junkie on them and say, well, this is this and this and this and this. Take the next step and say, hey, do you do you want to go? And take them out and and if you're an outdoors person, if you're mountain biking, if you're somebody who's kayaking or rock climbing or any of those things and listening to this, stop and think, do I pay attention to what kind of plants there are around me when I put my kayak in the water? Did I pay attention to what kind of birds I saw on the water? And if you're not, do it, <laughs> you know, and then don't just do it there. Do it on the drive to work and, you know, do it when you're looking out your office window and just stare out there until you get fired and you have to go live in nature. <laughs> <laughs> and leave the world behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, Josh, we're going to release this pretty soon. And so, you know, for people listening, what what are the opportunities this year? We're, we're in one of the next yeah. workshops. How many spots do you have? What where, where do those opportunities lie? So we will hopefully timed with the release of this have a section on our website, spokehollow.com, S-P-O-K-E-H-O-L-L-O-W.com, um, that will have our outdoor education programs. Um, they won't be ready to sign up, but they will have a spot where you can drop your email in, and then you'll get added to the communication as soon as the application's open, which I'm hoping will be sometime around July. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Josh, it's been a real pleasure to spend the last two days with you. Yeah. Um, you might have to tell me not to come and visit so often. <laughs> I think after this trip, you know, if, because I got to come down and fish with you more. If you just stay, you don't have to come visit. <laughs> this is true, but after ninety days, they kick me out of America. So uh, yeah, I have to go <laughs> at some point. You can but, hide. You can hide out on the ranch. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I, it has been an education for me. Um, I really have enjoyed the insightful conversations on the water and with a beer in hand yeah um and i'm looking forward to doing this again me too i really enjoyed the time that i've spent with both you guys and hope that we do this a lot thanks josh cheers